Welcome back. Welcome in. A good Friday to you out there. Welcome to Country Roads Confidential at Earsports.com, part of the 24-7 Sports Network. I am Mike Casaza. Sweltering, melting down in Richmond, Virginia is Chris Anderson. Chris had a pool day on Thursday. How'd that turn out? Listen, I, I'm not sweltering. I, I'm fine. I enjoyed myself very much in my little baby pool sitting in my backyard. Um, but it is, if not for that pool, I would not be outside. It is extremely hot. Uh, my my winter, soft winter body has not yet accustomed to the mid-Atlantic summer heat quite yet. Oh, that's because the gyms are closed, right? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Uh, otherwise, I'd be getting in shape and be ready for it all. Gyms are open again here. They've been open for a while and haven't seen anything bad. So I got back into the, the kicking and punching at the gym and for a week now. And feel pretty good. No signs, no symptoms. So slowly these little obstacles come out of my way and things get back to normal. And um, my Friday is supposed to be spent in the water, too. Um, you're a good test subject for this because um, you make infrequent trips here and, and don't do the full-blown tourism stuff, right? Right. Where would you rank Morgantown as a waterfront destination? I see. I, I mean, obviously, I know that the river runs through there, and I know Cheat Lake is right outside of town. But I have not, other than a, a quick trip to Cheat Lake once upon a time, have not really frequented the waterfronts in and around Morgantown. So for me, it's uh, like I said, I know that the waterfronts are there. I know the river's there. I see that I drive by them. I go by them all the time. But it's not something I think of. Is it? Is it a big thing? Is that something you enjoy? I do. I'm, I'm a big fan of beaches and on the water. Waterfront probably wasn't the right question. Maybe it is because like Morgantown is known for some waterfront properties. In fact, there's the waterfront hotel that you like to stay at. Uh-huh. Um, and they have some like a pizza place, an Italian restaurant, um, a couple good restaurants down in the waterfront in the waterfront district. So, yeah, they've made the most out of that river area and parks, rail trails, things like that. And it goes all around the city. Um, so not just right when you get off of that 79-68 switch on exit 1 off of 68. But if you go you know, all the way north into Star City, you can follow that river around there. And there's cool stuff everywhere. Um, a little bit diverse. You know, you'll find coffee shops and playgrounds and parts like that more toward the, uh, the Star City side. And like I said, the full-scale restaurants and breweries and pizza places, they're down on the, the part near the, the interstate switch. But And in between, you know, a lot of good green space and outdoor areas for running, walking dogs, riding bikes, stuff like that too. But um, yeah, between the fishing and the you know, you'll see boats and you'll see, I guess what you call like floaters or rafting, maybe floaters in the river isn't the right word, but <laughs> people on their inflatable devices who just, you know, the lock is at one spot and, you know, you, you get in there and you float and you go and you spend it out there. That's a cool time too. But the Cheat Lake area is, is kind of sneaky. I think people think of it as a neighborhood where a lot of the affluent will live where the coaches like to hang out there too. But um, it's a really vibrant boating place too. And, you know, some of the backwater areas turn into like like music festivals everybody's got their radio on and they're floating around and they got their boats tied together too i've heard some some alarming stories about that so far too but there's a cool bar and some restaurants right on the lake too um and you might not know this there's a beach as well mm. and that's my plan i'm gonna i'm not gonna end the beach some people might know it but uh there's a beach out there sometimes there's some riffraff sometimes there's some people who are grilling and, and having a good time but um i think the coast is clear where you can go and do something like that i'm kind of hoping that enough people are worried still or uh, you know alarmed or on guard that maybe it won't be too crowded i like it so i 
Are, are we inviting our listeners to go no. out and bother no. you and, no. and, and invite themselves into your barbecue? Well, one, uh, you would not recognize me right now. <laughs> I, I did see you on that Zoom call. You had a very, very cute little hair, hair bow in there, Mike. Your hair is getting so long. It was very nice. I'm a headband guy. I told you. But between that and the growth and everything, too, I'm intentionally incognito right now, too. Speaking of yesterday, excuse me, speaking of Wednesday, gosh, time flies. Um, the big event of the summer, not even summer, it's still the big event of the summer, the Neil Brown question and answer with uh, Bud Elliott hosting, pinch hitting, um, 24-7 sports video extraordinaire. He comes in, he handles the questions. You and I uh, stay to the side. We don't want it to be about us. We don't want Neil to think that he's doing us favors or that, you know, one is too close to the other. That's not fair. We did observe. We did get some collateral damage when he accused us of not being able to do anything athletically <laughs> in so many words. Um, but really ripped off about, I think, about a dozen questions and answers, 30 minutes of material, um, good stuff for fundraising, for recruiting, for season tickets. Everything has a purpose. And his purpose was to entertain and inform and to probably do some ancillary tasks like I just mentioned there because um, – if you know him, he's pretty efficient, and he's going to find a way to make the most out of everything. And I think he touched a lot of bases during that Q&A. Yeah, quick question for you. Was mm -hmm. it better or worse than your standard media scrum with Neil Brown? Well, much better. Everything's better one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, everything's better one-on-one. -on -one. No, I There's mean no the doubt. questions. Is... The questions from the fans, were they better than the questions from the media after a game? Well, define Give it media to me, here. Mike. Define media. Like, <laughs> minor, astute, and sometimes need a translator, I guess, too. But... Um, I would think better in that it wasn't about the stuff that he's conditioned to talk about. You know, he's mm -hmm. probably going to get, we, we think, I mean, during the course of the season, I don't know, those press conferences, he's going to get, I don't know, 200 questions maybe. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to have post-game stuff. And there's another, I don't know, maybe another 80 there. You're looking at a guy between that and the radio stuff he does with fans during the season. It's all about the same stuff, you know, 500 questions, let's say. And it's all about the same two or three subjects. This is different. This was, like I said, 12 or 15 questions that were about, you know, his family, his travels, his recruiting ideas, his fundraising ideas, but also you know, what books he likes to read, which is kind of an interesting way to end it too, I thought. And he was ready for that one too. And uh, just some more personal stuff too. And again, open a window and people look in, there's a chance they're going to like it. And for that, I think he should be commended. It's a really good way to engage, especially during this time, too. It's odd that it's at the, the end of this period and it's so close to him restarting things again. But again, about two, two months to arrange this. <laughs> I don't know if it was supposed to take that long, but uh, the spirit was, uh, was commendable. He was definitely invested in that. What would you say stood out uh, about what he answered? Not the question, but, but more so what he said in response to the question. He was prepared for every question. Mm -hmm. Would you agree? Yes. Okay. Um, the fact that he could rattle off the three most influential books was good. Not a surprise that he's read two of them, at least, I guess. One of them is about the All Blacks in New Zealand. I've heard him borrow from some of that stuff before. I've actually read that book, not to pat myself on the back. And one of them is about, like, time management called The Slight Edge and, you know, how you, you make the most out of little things. And that's something he talks about all the time. I have not read Energy Bus, which was the last one that he mentioned. Mm -hmm. But apparently that's a pretty good one, too. So two of them I wouldn't surprise about because I've, I've read one and knew about the other one. Um, but also the fact that like he had an answer and a strategic one for where he likes to recruit and to visit, um, take it away there. Cause that was, again, nothing is accidental here. Um, and he kind of mentioned why he might've actually used that answer, but why did he pick that one? You think? 
Well, I thought it was interesting how he kind of started out with the the Florida comments. Obviously, of course, you know, talking about the weather and going down there. Um, and the very first thing I thought of when he mentioned that was his story from signing day in December, where they were recruiting Akeem Mesador. Um, and he was so he was in Florida and his family was in Canada and he and I believe it was Jamila Dye and maybe somebody else got on a plane from Morgantown down to Florida, came out in shorts, met him, met the coach down there, hopped on a plane, flew back up to Ontario, I believe, and hopped back out in a parka to go meet his family and all in about the span of about 24 hours. And I, I, I love those kind of stories because that's the kind of things that maybe weren't as, um, you know, prevalent, uh, 10 years ago, even not, you know, not even going that far back, but really kind of are now with a lot of these international students that are coming to America, not just the Europeans, but guys in Canada that are coming and going to prep school, in Florida or Ohio or wherever it may be. And that was all I thought about when he was trying to decide where it was his favorite spot to listen. The very first thing he thought of was Florida. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, he settles on Savannah, Georgia. Yes. Which, that is not a coincidence. That's something, I mean, obviously they want to be important and recognizable and successful in Georgia, but even Savannah seems like it's an on the uptick kind of place, which you mentioned too. But um, what's the relevance of that area for that answer? Uh, a very specific uh, city like rarely do you get that specific about guys uh sam brown from the area in the last class uh west virginia with a few different kind of targets maybe not all the way down in savannah but i know you know that's where travis trickett recruits a lot um and vic coning gets in there some uh, obviously as uh, on defensive guys so i think yeah this is kind of maybe more so for the whole state for Georgia. And it's something that, that to his credit, Dana Holgerson and his staff recognized as well was that Georgia is about as stacked as Florida is, as far as talent goes. And they may not have quite as many colleges coming in there to try to steal these kids away. So if you don't feel like dealing with all the competition or all the shenanigans that come with recruiting in Florida, Georgia is a pretty good, backup option for the sake of a better uh, of of a better term i think this is purposeful for him and for his branding initiative or his his marketing wing his, his pr staff whatever you want to call it however you want to label it football it's a good exercise for him because he can do things like that he can circle a city on a map and say we really like this place and then you know they're gonna one way or another hear about that um when he talks about recruiting it's not just that it's, it's coaches too, so to speak. He made a really important designation that like the big 12 is like an elite coaching talent league and mentioned that there are some head coaches and assistant coaches who have participated on national championship teams. And there are, there's three, I believe, uh, Les miles, Dave Aranda at LSU last year. He's the head coach at Baylor. Now who was the DC at uh, LSU and Oh, Chris Kleiman. I mean, that counts. Mm-hmm. Constructing a dynasty at, at the FCS level is, is pretty important work. So, um, that's helpful. And there might be more too that I know of, but, um, but also when he mentioned like the activities for his children, the diverse schools and that Morgantown has some of the nicest people in the world. I'm sure he means that, but I'm sure that that is supposed to find other people's eyes and your ears and eyeballs too, so they can hear and see those things too. Um, so I think that's, it's a good workshop for him. He might've 
used old material. He might have tried some new material. And one thing that he did kind of confess that he hadn't said this publicly very often, too, was with regard to that fifth quarter program. And I think we think a lot of it is about you know, how to get them ready so they can get a job somewhere else. Um, how can they market themselves or create their own brand so they're more recognizable during and after college? Just how can they situate themselves for success after college when they're in college? And he said that something else, too, is that Morgantown doesn't reinvest, you know, human brain trust or brain power, he called it, back into the state. You know, a lot of guys get their degree and they go play in the NFL or they go coach somewhere else or they go work in an office or some sort of a job or business or profession outside of the state. And he wants to be involved with linking his players with businesses and corporations and executives and administrators within the state and let WVU's football program be kind of a, an HR minor league, so to speak, where guys get ready for the real world. And if they don't make it professionally in the NFL, then, hey, make it professionally in one of these businesses that you've had a chance to be around for your three or four or five years on campus. I thought that was a, a new point that I can definitely see him repurposing in future discussions. Yeah, and I think, obviously, as we've kind of gone through the years, these kids have gotten smarter about that kind of stuff, talking about specifically about recruits. You know, maybe, again, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was just, hey, where can I go to just play football? Where where, where am I going to get on the field first? Or who's going to give me the NFL? And now guys are much more precise about this type of stuff they are going to look further into who can develop them, who can connect them with post-football careers and post-football opportunities. And uh, it's obviously important that Neil Brown focus on that and, and really kind of amplify that uh, fifth quarter program. The headline probably, and we're responsible for this, so is he, by the way, but the headline, I think, at least early on, was – he has some ideas for what's next in facilities. There was a good question from one of our members about what do they need? What do they have to have? What do they want to have on the football side? If and when fundraising and project confidence is back to where it was before the pandemic. Um, and I think if you didn't know the answer, you probably had an idea what the answer would be. Premium seating is, is one that I really want to get to. I have thoughts and I have facts about why that's probably not going to happen. Um, and he certainly wouldn't be surprised that he would pick out the indoor practice facility, which he did. Holgerson would never even talk about that. He got in so much hot water when he would denigrate it or just even comment on it with facts that he just decided it wasn't worth it anymore for him. He was tired of dealing with the feedback and, and whatever kind of gruff that WVU had to um, accept and, and reconcile from their donors after that. But he has a, a different spin on a different plan where it doesn't involve knocking it down and building a new one, which a lot of fans would clamor for, but actually to continue to repurpose it. They've already done some work, but he has ideas for what else they want to do. You've been in there, right? So what have they done to help change it, to make it more of what he wants? And what does he have up his sleeve that he mentioned? Well, they were working on it last summer when we were all there for camps. They were tearing up the, the floor, putting in new, new flooring, evening things out, fixing um, some issues that were underneath it. He wants to put in video boards on the inside, which after he kind of talked about it, I was like, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I can see that. That makes sense. But if you had asked me before he, before I listened to that interview, before I listened to him give that answer, I would have probably rattled off about 20 things to add or improve or change about the indoor practice facility before I got to add a video board to it. Was that even on your radar? Like, 
I know they want to make it like more of a, I don't know what the phrase is, like a banquet facility mm-hmm. or something like that. I don't know what the right word is, but more of a multi-purpose thing. So, for example, on game days, uh, that's like a, a, a like a ballroom at McDonald's for kids. They You go in there with your family and your small children, they can run around and do some stuff. And, and um, it's not football purposes, too. So it's a thing that the university can use. So, listen, it has its limitations and it has its usefulness when it comes to football and also baseball and soccer and things like that. But, you know, it, it exists. And if you're not going to tear it down, if you're not going to use that space for other purposes, let's maximize its utility. So I'm thinking, you know, what does that add to practices? I don't know. Perhaps, like, if you're doing drill work right away, and I know that other other programs on campus have this capability, basketball, volleyball, um, you're recording practice, you can stop it, and you can spin back the DVR 10 seconds, 30 seconds, and you can watch on a monitor that's on the side of the floor or on the side of the court what just happened. Conceivably, you could do the very same thing with football so that would be one idea could you have like live feedback instantaneous feedback um indoor that you might not be able to do outdoor like where are you going to put that could you do that in the practice capacity on the actual field maybe not on the practice field that'd be too hard you'd have to roll a video board out there every day so that's not mobile so if you can do something inside hey maybe you go in there for a particular work packages um goal line sets you know scout team stuff i don't know that's interesting to me but um, there's a recruiting component involved too, where you know we, we've seen those cool pictures about like the dinners out on the field, like at the 50 yard line at Mountaineer Field. Is that going to work every time? I don't know. Can you do it in touchdown terrace? Yeah. Is that going to work every time? I don't know. Maybe not. But could you do something inside of the practice facility where on that video board you play a highlight video? Um, you know, you play the you know the season highlights. You play whatever recruiting promotional content they have. Um, I think that's something you could actually make some use of in the recruiting area too. Um, So just two ideas in my head. If you're going to have it there, make the use of it. And I think you could do it for practice purposes, but also for some recruiting too. Well, we, we saw that this past summer and uh, one of the the very first summer camp where it scared the living bejesus out of me because we got to the point where all the recruits had done their station testing and they were getting ready to, congregate in the middle to split up into their position groups and at this point usually you know everything had kind of been on the same schedule as with the previous staff and at this point they kind of come together they split off into groups introduce the coaches and go their separate ways and all of a sudden the video board there in the stadium uh busted out with what i called the neil brown highlight tape from his time at troy and the big wins they had and what they uh you know were trying to show uh, recruits he could do when he got to West Virginia. Obviously, he hadn't actually coached a single game yet at West Virginia, so they didn't have highlights from their view. But and so they're going to use that, and we've seen them go through with videos on Twitter uh, constantly uh, about different things they're doing, graphics, all that stuff. So I absolutely agree that they would use that as as some kind of recruiting, like you said, for those dinners, uh, for the meetings where they're going through. Uh, getting ready for, say, photo shoots in the weight room and in the jerseys and all that stuff like they do with all all official visitors. So um, it it will definitely play a factor in that. And um, like I said, it's just not – I guess it's a creative way to go about it. It's just not something that ever crossed my mind as far as ways to kind of fix up indoor practice facility. But there are definitely uses for it. It's not a unique concept. And we talked to Bud Elliott for a couple minutes after the recording yesterday. 
And we talked about that specific thing that Brown had mentioned. I'd never heard him bring that up before. I'd never heard him really even talk about what he would call a wish list, I guess. And you said, yeah, same thing. And we talked about that one thing at video board. And he said, well, actually, you know, I've seen other places. And he said that sometimes in camps, if it's raining and there's a thunderstorm, if there's an hour between sessions or if it's lunch or whatever, you know, and guys are just around, you don't want them to be bored. Because if they're bored, what are they going to do? They're going to get on Twitter and see what their friends are doing at another campus. They're going to be distracted from what, you know, the host wants them to be focused on. And they'll hook up an Xbox or a PlayStation to those big video boards and let kids play Madden. And I hadn't thought about that before, too. And is that the primary purpose? No, but it certainly could serve that purpose. You think that's actually realistic from what you've seen at camps here? Uh, probably, Boomer. You're going to be all right? Is this too too millennial <laughs> for you? Uh, no, I, I agree. We Because we saw a, um, a rain delay, thunderstorm delay last year. And what they did was they took the guys into the Puskash Center, took them around the weight, weight room, took them to the locker room, took them to the different meeting rooms, kind of split them up and which was great. That was, that was very smart on their part to kind of um, turn it into a semi tour for those kids. Um, But you can only do that for so long. So I think if they have more opportunities, if they have more options, that is also there for them. At the minimum, it's gotten some time in the spotlight right now. We've explained pros, benefits, purposes, justifications for it. Um, five people hear this, 50 people hear this. Um, if five or 50 people get a phone call from the Mac and that heard this or read about it, it makes more sense now. And it's less selling that they have to do over the phone because they've already kind of fed the idea that this isn't an unreasonable request. Why actually it has some purpose. Let's go ahead and do it. I think it's going to make people a lot more amenable to it. And again, there's no coincidences. He, in fact, kind of went out of his way to go answer that part of the question too. It was like a two part question that he kind of got carried away on the first part. And then before we could even go on to the second question, he stopped and said, wait a minute, didn't you guys want me to talk about what we need over there? And <laughs> he made sure that he steered the car in between the pylons in his mind and got that thing home. That was, uh, that was pretty impressive work by him. Very nimble on his feet. Yes, uh, very telling. Uh, it, these coaches are, are pretty darn smart, and they say things for a reason, and they take conversations places for a reason. Seamless transition to Florida State and Mike Norvell. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> oh, man. Um, a, a crazy, I would say, 24 hours. I don't think it's done, even though it seems like the Seminoles are trying to make it done. But um, Mike Norvell, the new coach of Florida State, gets caught, I, I would say, in a lie. I don't know if that, that's pretty harsh, but I can't think of a better way to say it. Um, he has a transcript posted online about how he talked to every one of his players about the situation with George Floyd and the protests across the country. And it turns out that's not true and perhaps even far from the truth so much so that, I don't know, is that the best player on the team? I mean, the guy with the biggest profile and the biggest voice, he comes out and says that never happened. Um, And by the way, we're so offended by him using us as pawns that we're just not going to work out until we get this corrected. Um, A huge huge rock in the lake major ripples on this one yeah i was stunned it's it's always we who the voice is matters almost as much i think as the point they're trying to get across in these kind of instances and to have marvin wilson be the guy Mm -hmm. that comes out and and puts this right right in the coach's lap that you're a liar and we're not going to do anything and and, you know we're not going to work out we're not going to go through these as, as kind of a form of protest is pretty startling. Um, 
as you said, Florida State tried, has tried their best to completely nip this in the butt and have Norvell met with the team earlier today. Marvin Wilson came out with a video today that kind of said that, you know, everything's all right, I guess. I, I don't know if, because his words were pretty strong for t- to kind of flip back and everything be okay that quickly. But um, it's, it, it's, it's a strange thing because I don't understand Norvell's reasoning here. Like, did he think that nobody was going to call him out on that? That he, you know, he said that he talked to every single kid individually and obviously he didn't. And literally, as I'm saying this, Mike Norvell just sent out a, a statement on Twitter. Um, but it, it's it's very strange. I don't see what he was trying to get a part of. If he was trying to make waves with recruiting or just trying to make sure that he was out there saying he cared too, just to, to not be left behind or what? Um, my only question was just when I, when I thought, when I saw it was an issue, it's like, this guy can't possibly be this naive and this dumb. And maybe he's not, maybe he is. But I was looking into semantics because I've done this before where I've, I've heard one thing and I've written what I heard, and I can see there being a little bit of um, possible misrepresentation. I think what he said that I was wondering if there was some gray area here was that I went back and forth individually with every player this weekend. And I wonder if that means that anybody who he talked to, he went back and forth, that they had a good conversation. It could have been five people. It could have been 50 people, just to keep up this, this uh, symmetry here. But it, clearly it wasn't Marvin Wilson. But I wonder if he actually intended to say every single person on the roster or if he intended to say the people who I spoke with, we had a good back and forth about this. I'm not sure about that. Perhaps that's part of an explanation that comes out. But there's there's certainly a potential for a major misunderstanding there and a little bit of gray area in those words. Is, is well, that a possibility or is this just, you know, he flat out lied? I think you, you hit it right on the note. Or at least this is the story that he gave in his statement. I just read it as you were talking, like I said, uh, at least. And he says, you know, he texted every indep- every single player to open a line of communication with them as asking if they wish to speak with him about it, talk to them about it. Um, and only, you know, he says many members of the team chose to respond, but not every. So it was a mistake to use every um, in his original quote and statement. Probably a bridge too far to say he was going to get fired over this, but it's certainly not a good first step. And I was wondering how they would, do an apology or some sort of like an accountability measure here. And I figured he had to be alongside players and had to be something off of social media that didn't happen, but maybe it's been mitigated at such a point. It couldn't be, but this goes to kind of a larger point. We talked about Chris for many reasons, whether it's name, image and likeness, whether it's the fact that, you know, the group of five and power five exists separate and one has more luxuries than the other. Maybe even right now with some things we talked about recently, but players have power and leverage like never before. And they're not afraid to, to speak out about it, too. Um, I think this is an example of that where one guy clearly invested and affected by what's going on around him right now sees that and just immediately flinches and says, this is not right. And I do wonder, I still have concerns about this, about could something happen? You know, perhaps it's aligning with the university's stance on, you know, Black Lives Matter or any of the societal issues right now that are going on with protests and, and police um, if they don't think that their team or the university is, you know, quite strongly enough on their side, they may say something. They may do something without any fear now, because look at the quick addressing and reaction this received. This is all happening within a span of what twelve hours, I think. And additionally, coming back to school, um, there are some concerning, 
developments to what extent we don't know, but like some headlines about this too. And I don't think any player is going to have a reservation now, especially to say, this isn't safe. I'm not doing this. Or we want certain conditions or certain parameters either before we come back or before we continue. And until then we're going to stop until we get the response that we want to address this issue. We're not doing the thing that you want us here to do. Um, seems like it's happening slowly, but more, more often now too. Yeah. And that's, this kind of leads into why I said it was so important who said it uh, yeah. than what they said. Cause if the third string, you know, inside receiver says something, is anybody going to care that much? Like, I mean, I'm sure it will catch some traction, but when you're all American uh, caliber leader of the team comes out and says that kind of stuff, it's going to garner headlines. It's going to garner a response and it's going to force Florida state and uh, Mike Norvell into giving, giving a response more quickly and more publicly as well. Strange times. Um, I don't think it's the end of this either. I think that there's certainly potential for this to continue to happen too. And maybe this happens sooner than later because as I said, some, some headlines at least about positive tests and quarantine players, um, some of the campuses that have come back, Marshall, Oklahoma State, just off the top of my head as far as relevance to WVU, um, having some asymptomatic players, having some people who have been out protesting, having some people who are back on campus and now have tested positive for COVID-19. And this is kind of what people expected, I think. I don't know how significant it is. Um, when you're bringing people back from afar and you're testing them, people who haven't been tested may test positive. So naturally there's some discovery i'm not sure to what extent we should be alarmed i do think that it's worth noting because if five turns into 15 and 15 turns into 30 or whatever then you might have a problem there and this may perk up players or administrators or whatever but what do you think of the early return so far the early news about you know, almost the weekend probably five days into players back on campus um, I'm not sure much of it was surprising. I think most everyone is of the same belief that, hey, there's a lot of people out there that probably have it or have had it that don't know it. And honestly, I think, you know, it's it's this is going to sound strange, but it's good news when people have it that don't know it, because that means it's more prevalent and maybe less deadly uh, than previously thought. But I'm curious. I don't know. You, you know, now it just kind of hit me what is a handful you said you know five to 15 to 30 what what happens there but are they going to we know there are standards in place at almost every school for testing to see if you have it currently like if you are positive or negative for COVID at that very moment I'm curious if they're going to start implementing some sort of antibody testing I know that that's not quite as accurate as COVID testing or if they're going to try to check that out because if 100 kids come back and only five test positive, I think that's probably on the low side, that there might probably are more that have had it, and they might want to know the answers to that as well. So I'm curious how how expanded the testing and how public the results will be. I had the antibody test done. I'm not doing the test. Uh, the reason I stayed inside for 10 weeks was so I didn't have to have them stick that swab <laughs> into the back <laughs> of my head. Not going to lie to you. I'm going to be a chicken when it comes to that. But I had the antibody test done, and it came back really quick. It's, it's about a 24-hour turnaround for people like me. So people who are more important in this in the grand <laughs> scheme here, like football players and football staffers and college administrators, whatever, they're going to get it back pretty quick, I would imagine. So it's not a hard thing to do. The only trouble I've heard is that it's about 50% accurate. Yeah, so that's not good. Perhaps there's more, there are better ones that are more accurate. I'm not sure. But I think that's, that's a good counter 
to what could be some rising resistance to this. If you say, because people are going to hear five and not hear five out of 125. Like you said, there's a, there's an important delineation there too. And if you can say, well, all right, five tested positive, but it turns out that 45 people had the antibodies, which means they weren't even affected. Perhaps we need to like step back and reassess this and understand that like some of this is inevitable and we can control the best as we can and isolate it, but also like it's not as bad as what, you know, a certain report or a certain statistic or a certain slant makes it seem to be. It probably would help the public understanding, I think. You might be onto something there. And I, I'll have to go back and check. I'm, I just saw the thing about Alabama. I can't remember for any of the others, but I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, the guys who Glad are to. testing positive, the guys who have tested positive that are returning, these college players have tested positive, I believe they're all asymptomatic. Is that right? I, I think... Alabama was that way. I'm not sure about the Marshall and Oklahoma State. Um, I think all the – I could tell you for sure on what I read about Marshall, if I could pull it up here, but I think I think you're right. And then I'm not familiar with the Oklahoma State ones. I'm not sure they actually – did they describe it? I know that they said that it was five players, but I'm not sure. I'm not I'm not sure either, but I'm just – What they had said there. I'm just saying, like, here we go. Like, the only people testing – there's only a hand – you know, a very small percentage testing positive and – those small percentages are asymptomatic, which you could take that however you want to take it. I, I take it as, as good news, but kind of depends on how you're looking at it. So Marshall was three players and one staff member. And um, they all came back from hotspots, people who were, whether lived in or were most recently in a place that had concerning numbers. But, um, None of them have symptoms, so they go into a two-week quarantine period. So, again, it's it's four out of – I think they have maybe 75 people who are back. So three players out of about 75, good ratio, and all asymptomatic. That's that's not bad. So um, not perfect. It wasn't going to be perfect, though. Yeah. Probably something we're going to have to wrap our minds around, but I think those are good questions to ask because I'm not sure what the policy here is at West Virginia on stuff like that, too. Um, are they going to report the positive test? Are they only going to report when it's positive? Or are they going to say – positive but not asymptomatic are they going to tell you only when it's asymptomatic people zero expectation that they'll give you the names because of hipaa rules i understand that but i wonder if in the public interest or if just in how a public university functions if they're going to actually disclose some of that information i would hope so my expectation is they will but i think it's part of the plan they're trying to color in still yeah i think i i, I agree that the hipaa law and naming names is going to cause an interesting conundrum there for the very reason you're talking about because we're talking about trying to quarantine these people in a public setting and but uh, louisville i believe it was is the one that's just not even acknowledging that people are testing positive or releasing the numbers which i think is a mistake i think with public universities in these situations they need to share these numbers to let everyone know exactly what's happening uh, the names i get it don't name it that's fine but, you know, say, hey, we tested all 120 players on the football team and six of them tested positive. None of them had symptoms. They're going into quarantine. In two weeks, they'll be allowed to return. And that's it. And I think that is responsible, a responsible move by each university if they do that. Who makes decisions at Louisville Athletics? <laughs> like, it, it's remarkable again and again and again. This is not a hard thing to do. It's public trust. It's public interest. It's public safety. Just, again, no one's expecting names, but if you say, hey, 15 positive tests, or hey, one positive test, like, it doesn't change anything. It just, it's, 
being open and having good faith in the endeavor that you're in right now, too. I don't understand what is so controversial with that. And it just makes you throw rocks at people like Louisville who do a whole lot on their own to have people take aim at them. Phew. Yeah. Some, there's a lot of people getting paid a lot of money for public relations that are not entirely good at public relations. So, yeah. Well, we've I'll covered just... a couple of them today here toward the end, so that's good. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then, we, of course, we let off with a good public relations by the football coach at West Virginia. And then uh, somewhere in between is you and I, Chris. Yeah, somewhere. All right. Well, we can spend the weekend trying to figure that one out. Let's wrap it up here. So, um, as always, that's all for this time. Until next time, I'm Mike Kassazin. And I'm Chris Anderson. Going to go have a wild weekend on the beaches of Morgantown. We will talk to you later.